Welcome to Pantisocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, thanks. It's always nice to be appreciated, even when I know that that appreciation has been primed. Well, welcome to my little soiree of interesting people doing fabulous things. We like to say that Pantisocracy is a bit like your ideal dinner party. You've got a beautiful host, intriguing guests. Just no food or drink. And uh, joining me in our gathering tonight, uh, first guest is a Galway woman known for her unique style and voice. She's the incredibly beautiful Julie Feeney, uh, a woman who loves wigs just about as much as I do. Welcome, Julie. Beside Julie, we have a man of letters, Mr. Dermot Bulger, who started his working life in a factory and whose dramatization of James Joyce's Ulysses opens in the Abbey Theatre this autumn. Thanks for being here, Dermot. And next to Dermot is a rock chick DJ turned jewellery designer, Jenny Houston, who swapped Canada for Ireland and spinning discs for silver and gold. Welcome, Jenny. And we have Shane Hegarty, one-time arts editor of the Irish Times, who packed it all in to write fantasy novels for children and who has since hooked a major Hollywood movie deal for his Dartmouth books. Welcome, Shane. But first, um, I get to hold centre stage just for a few moments uh, in what we call the Panty Monologues. I don't believe that the universe has a grand plan. I don't believe that God put me here for a reason. I don't believe that Oprah knows the secret. I don't believe in divine intervention. I don't believe in karma or destiny or fate. But I do believe in accidents and coincidence and happenstance and randomness and chaos and dumb luck. You know, some people, perhaps most people even, are terrified by the thought that it, perhaps it's all random. They want to believe that someone somewhere knows what the hell is going on. <laughs> they want to believe that even if they can't see it right now, there's a reason why their niece got a horrible disease. That however obtuse, it's somehow all part of God's big plan. They want to believe the universe brought them and their partner together on holidays in Spain that time. You know, chaos is frightening to most people. So they want there to be someone in charge. They want there to be an order, a pattern, a plan. They want to be able to, you know, explain that, well, Tom can be a bit of a prick sometimes because, well, Scorpios are like that, aren't they? <laughs> and they desperately want to believe that they can influence the plan by saying the right prayer or worshipping the right God or not you know, stepping on cracks in the pavement. But I am the exact opposite. It's the plan that scares me. The idea that it's all mapped out somewhere and an invisible finger is pushing me along some preordained path. You know, that is absolutely terrifying to me. The idea that someone or something planned all of this, and that plan includes kids dying of leukemia. You know, that's what scares me. I mean, you can keep your cosmic plan. I'll stick to the chaos. <laughs> now, one of our guests here today, Julie Feeney, she has a song called Life's Nudge. And um, it's about the moments when life gives you a nudge, you know, pushes you on or pulls you up or, you know, maybe bumps you onto another course. And I do believe in nudges, or accidental ones anyway. I call them happy accidents. Of course, they're not always happy, but um, I try not to dwell on the bad ones. And when I look back over my life, I can see so clearly the nudges or the happy accidents. And in my case, anyway, the most important and significant nudges, the happiest of my happy accidents, have all been people. You know, for example, when I was a student graphic designer, a bad student graphic designer, in the 1980s, I went to a party in my brother's flat in London, and in the kitchen there was an, an Australian performance artist and legendary nightclub personality called Lee Bowery. And that accidental meeting, that random happenstance, changed the course of my life. 
you know, walking into that kitchen showed me that there were a lot of possibilities in the world, you know, possibilities that I hadn't previously considered. And as a bonus, that kitchen encounter also spared the world from a lot of awful graphic design. <laughs> and then, for example, 10 years ago, when I was working in a nightclub and feeling a little, well, frustrated, a little stuck, and a little, and this has always been my greatest fear, a little bored, I young man walked up to me, he had the courage of a few beers in him, and he said that he'd like to make a theatre show with me. And I looked at him and said, who the feck are you? <laughs> but it turned out that he was Philip McMahon, and it turned out that he was also a nudge, a happy accident. And we've been making theatre shows together and touring the world with him ever since. Now, I don't think that I met Lee Bowery in the kitchen of a party through divine intervention, and I don't think that it was fate that I met a young theatre director full of Dutch courage in a nightclub. I think it was dumb luck. They were happy accidents, and they were just the nudge that I needed. Um, Judy was listening to your song, sort of got me started on thinking about you know, accidents and nudges. Oh, and yeah. I think um, everybody has them, whether you believe that they were you know, accident or, or divine intervention hardly matters. Now, now Shane, yours is, was a big one. You were, had a, a lovely job in the Irish Times, and... You would see a, a path straight ahead, and that path was very comfortable, I assume, or pretty much comfortable. This is before we all found out that newspapers are going under. But <laughs> yeah, and funny, when I looked at that path, I actually, I think that straightness of it scared me a bit. Yeah. Because I thought, do I really want to just do this for the rest of my career yeah. or until everything goes wrong, either newspapers end or I make some terrible mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and I sort of came up with this ridiculous long shot idea of how to change my career because I'm completely useless at anything else. But, but what's amazing to me is so you have this comfortable life ahead of you and you're frustrated or whatever, you're, yeah. you, you want to change it. But you decide to do that at a time when you've just had twins, I think. Uh, yeah, I had, I had uh, two kids and I had twins on the way. So that's a sort of terrifying time to jump off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. So um, I certainly, when I started writing the first of the Darkmouth books, which is a series that I write, we had twins on the way. And that was my nudge, really, because I'd hit a bit of a wall in the Irish Times where I worked. And I kind of thought, do I really want to be here until I'm kicked out? And I just had that moment. I remember being on the train on the way into work one morning, literally sitting on the floor of the train because it was packed. Mm. And this idea came to me for the book. And I thought, well, if I don't do this now... I'll never do it and I'll regret it. And there's, there's always been that idea that if the Irish Times building had burnt down, there would be 200 half-finished novels on every computer in the, uh, in the building. So I just thought, look, the kids are coming along. It's going to get very busy if I don't try this now. And even if it fails, at least I've given it a go. But to me, that's a terrifying time to try because I would think I'm a, you, know, you have the responsibility already of two children and then you've got twins on the way. I mean, wouldn't all your instincts to keep on the safe path, be kicking in at that point. I, I was looking for two reasons. First of my wife, Maeve, when I had holidays, she was saying, just go to work. I'd go into the National Library in Dublin and write the book. Um, she'd say, go out as if you're leaving for work. And when you, work, when you write in the National Library, you realise most people in the National Library are not studying in the National Library. They're writing plays and uh, novels and everything else. And then the second thing was timing is a huge thing. So I kind of came along at the right time with the right idea. And I had an opportunity to effectively jump from that nice pensionable job in the Irish Times to 
one that didn't have a guaranteed future, but at least let me live for a few years. Mm. Um, and I had a path there because I had four books that I knew I had to write and I couldn't do the two things at the same time. You, you so, knew from the beginning that there was going to be four books. Well, one, once the contract that came then came in, and I mean, there are so many things that go together for something like that to happen. You have to be the right, you have to have the right story for the right publisher at the right time and you have to have a good agent. And all these things kind of came together. And when the phone call came in, where she said, look, this is the deal, this is the option you have. And I'd kind of baby puke on my shoulder, <laughs> kids were crying, and I was sort of trying to kind of give the thumbs up while everything was chaos in the house. Mm. But it was this sort of magical moment where this kind of long shot had come through. And yeah. if circumstance had been different, if I'd finished the book six months later, it might, might never have happened. Mm. And I'd still be in the Irish Times. Mm. Sometimes I think you know, we have this idea, the Irish idea that we like to cut down the tall poppy. But in actual fact, I think there's another side of where we love other people's Irish success. And yours is one of those just super exciting stories where you, you took this stupid chance and it worked out amazingly well, like better than you could possibly have imagined. And now it's going, going to be Hollywood movies and you, you, like it could not have gone better. And just even if I didn't, wasn't meeting you today, if I, if I you know, reading the, the, your story in a way, I was just thrilled that it, that it happened like that for someone. Well, thank you. And people have been lovely. And I also think there is that Irish thing that people like writers to be successful because that's what we do. And even when you go over to the UK and, and the first time I went to HarperCollins, the publishers, to the office, one of the first questions from one of them was, where do the Irish keep producing writers? Mm. And we're producing a lot more children's writers as well now. Owen Colfer and Derek Landy and Cecilia Hearn has written a children's book recently. And, um, uh, Dermot, you wrote a children's book. I did. Yeah. Um, I wrote a children's book called Newtown Soul that they put in the leaving cert for some reason as one of the options and nobody could understand it. They all loved it, but they couldn't. And I used to get these desperate emails from students and teachers saying, can you please explain what happened at the end? And I used to write back and say, I'm only the author, I wouldn't know. And uh, so it, it, it seems to have disappeared off the edge of the leaving cert at the moment. So I, it, it's not around. But the most nervous poet I ever met was a man called Martino Duran, an Irish language poet, very nervous man. And he once said that he was going down to have an operation in hospital and he was been wheeled down and they give you the first little injection to calm you down and then the second injection will knock you into blackout and just as he came to that the nurse leaned over him and said are you Martino Duran? My sister failed her leaving cert because of you. <laughs> <laughs> so I always felt this a certain sense of relief when my, my, my book slipped off the leaving cert. I said, Listen, in case I'm ever in casualty. Well, you know? it must be a sort of double-edged sword because on the one hand, it must, it must help sales. But on the other hand, there's a generation of kids who are going to grow up hating you. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jenny, um, yours is also a story of, well, a couple of big leaps in the dark. So you have Irish parents, but they had moved to Canada. So you're, you're born in Canada, a place where half of this country is trying to move to, and you decide to come back this way. Which was kind of an accident. Um, mm -hmm. My mum came back. Um, she came back to set up the Crafts Council of Ireland's Jewellery Skills course. So I'd finished my first degree, which was psychology, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. <laughs> so I, I went to Kilkenny to visit mum, and I thought, maybe I'll backpack, maybe I'll whatever. And I just sort of started working in a pub and folding jumpers on the high street and working in the box office at the Cat Laughs. And, and I was working part-time in the radio station. So I just liked it and stayed, mm -hmm. but I never... I didn't move to Ireland. I visited mm. Ireland and never left. So I'm here 21 years. Mm. And, and, and you arrived here with, you know, no plan or whatever. And the next thing you know, you have a, a big radio show on the biggest station. You're, you know, and, and for 10 years, you are the rock chick radio woman. Yeah. Um, with the show where they let you play anything you want. And, uh, you know, and, and you're a big wig in, in this small pond for... Yeah. 
you know, that doesn't happen to people. No, it was, and I still can't believe it happened to me in a way. I really didn't think that it would ever happen. I used to have little fantasies and daydreams about being a DJ, and I always thought that would be the coolest job ever. But it was kind of one of those dreams you don't let yourself spend too much time on because it was impractical and unlikely, and very mm. few people get to... Especially for a woman, I think. Yes, Because yes. it's still pretty male-dominated, but it's certainly... Yeah, and particularly so. rocks even more male-dominated, yeah. and then the fact that I had a Canadian accent and was in Ireland. So I just was, forget about it. Yeah. And I was working as a theatre producer at the time and I thought okay well all these amazing creative people around me doing their thing I don't have their talent but I love music so I gave myself kind of permission to do a teeny little radio show on a pirate station and I loved it it was my happy place and I'd sort of met one of the producers in RT who was a friend of a friend's about seeing about maybe becoming a researcher or working behind the scenes as a producer and he obviously thought that I should uh, be a presenter and pass that on to the head of 2FM and they phoned me so it was very Cinderella in my land, you know, somebody phoning me saying, we've been listening to you on the internet. Uh, you know, could you send us a voice sample? So I did. That was Wednesday. Thursday, I sent the voice sample. Friday, he phoned me to say, you're hired. Sunday, I was trained. And Monday, I was on air after Dave Fanning. So it wow. was mental. Absolutely <laughs> mental. I mean, I literally, I was shaking like this. And Dan Hegarty, who's still a DJ on 2FM, says he remembers. I was like this, trying to, you know, I knew that I had to press this button for my jingle and this button for the oh, fader. No. And my hands were like this. And he said he could hear my mouth open. It was so dry. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the only regret that I have about your story is, is that you weren't a pirate radio like 15 years earlier because they all had these insane, really brilliant names. You know, they didn't want to use their real names on pirate radio. So they're Dusty Roads. And, you yeah. know, and I, I was like, they have drag queen names. Yeah. All of those older DJs in Ireland have drag queen names. I did. Yeah, Rick O'Shea, <laughs> Dusty Rhodes. I mean, yeah. Robin yeah. Banks. Robin Banks. Yeah. You know, so. I actually did a voice test for Atlantic 252, and they said they wanted to call me Annette Curtin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank but God. For a, week, for a week in Canada and on the, the sort of uh, university radio station that I was on, I called myself Goldie Rocks. <laughs> but I just, I, I couldn't pull it off. I didn't have your, I didn't have your confidence in your, your presence. So I was like, nah, I'm just going to be Jenny. <laughs> now, now, Dermot, um, I mentioned briefly in passing the beginning that you started out working in a factory and solid working class background from Finglas, right? You know, not that I want to age you here, but Finglas was pretty rural then, I'm Ah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't. It was a mixture of country people who moved out to houses that were built in the late 40s, early 50s, and then people who moved out to corporation estates from the inner city. And so there was that mixture of two different types of people starting in a new place, a place Mm. where the city saw you as cultures and the cultures saw you as city people. And so, but I mean, it's interesting talking about Shane talking and you talking to me about things. John Butler Yeats, who was the father of William Butler Yeats, uh, the poet, and, and, and Jack Butler Yeats, he sat his, his teenage sons down to give them some career advice early on. And he said, you know, boys, and this applies to girls as well, you know, boys, he said, a steady job can be the ruin of many a good man which isn't the normal advice you give yeah. your things. And the great Tony Cronin, that wonderful poet, had a wonderful thing. He, he talked about drift. He said the central thing that fills most people's lives are drift. We drift into things. We're not, we, we presume there's a plan. We have a plan. Mm, yeah. But our lives are primarily focused by drift. So where, where <laughs> Shane gave up a very good job in the Irish Times, I sort of made sure that I was never in a position where I had a good job to give up. I walked as, as, a, as a factory hand. Then I, I walked as the worst library assistant in the 
history of Dublin County Council, <laughs> uh, which was very difficult. And I was banished to the Siberian salt mines of the mobile libraries, where I dispensed largesse of Mills and Boons and Westerns to the populace of Skerries and Rush and Lusk and Lakshini and all these places. And I deliberately never went for promotion. And I never. And so it was the whole thing was always one day the dream of becoming a writer, though I never knew that dream would actually happen. But mm. but the whole thing was to make myself sufficiently not embedded in anything that, that yeah. had, had anything. I think that my generation could do that in a way that maybe the Celtic Tiger generation couldn't in that, mm. you know, looking at my nephew and nieces generations, like they were pressurised to get on the property ladder at yeah. the age of, you know, 19, 20, 21. That sort of space that we had in our 20s yeah. to experiment and try things didn't seem to be there. And very often I think that a lot of that creativity, sometimes people give up various jobs because they have a brilliant idea that actually yeah. works. But sometimes that happens by simply people being in that state limbo of not having having full-time yep. work and having the space for creative things to happen. And yep. sometimes you discover uh, literature and art and painting a bit like you discover sex by accident. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, you know, yeah, that's something I, when I was reading up about, you know, I, I totally identified with you from the beginning because my life is just, I just drifted along doing whatever. But in a weird way, I think, you know, my, my queerness gave me the freedom to do that because I wasn't going to be getting married and settling down and having kids. So I was free to just drift along and, to, and just do things as they came along. And, and I was happy doing that, you know, for a long time. But you did know that you wanted to be a writer, that you had a goal that you were hoping you would drift towards. When you met Michael Hartnett and when you met these great, great poets, they lived in terrible poverty. Mm, so yeah. when I had this dream of becoming a, a writer, I had no notion you could make a living. No more than musicians very hard to make a living. And I remember walking with my late wife when we were going out and explaining that we would probably never own a house. Yeah. Now, then success came and, and then success can be it is sometimes success can be immediate I mean like the Abbey are doing my version of Ulysses in the Dublin Theatre Festival this year but it was actually written 23 years ago mm. uh, and performed once in the Rosenbach Museum in, in Philadelphia and forgotten for 25 years so sometimes success comes immediately you very casually there said oh success came eventually but my god your output is huge you get up every single day and just start writing. You must do, because there's no way you can... uh, I think as a writer, and I think this probably goes for playwrights, and it probably even goes for making jewellery as well. When you're making a piece of jewellery, when you're making a children's book, when you're making, you're making a song, you must believe this is the best song, the best piece of jewellery, the best children's book ever, ever. Mm. You've been totally in love with it. And then you must actually reject it. Because I'm always thinking ahead to the next thing. And maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing. But it means that you wind up producing quite a lot when you look back. Mm. Now, now, Julie, the, this sort of idea of nudges was, it actually comes from a song of yours. Now, the first time I became aware of you was when you were in your I'm going to wear a little tiny hat on my head phase. And I thought... Me and this woman should be friends. <laughs> you know, um, and your first album, well, the album was a success, and it was, it was your first album, you won the, the Choice Music Prize, and, you know, that's kind of a dream beginning, too. It, it's a little like Chains. Did that come as a shock or a surprise? Are you, this is no less than I deserve. <laughs> I'd already taken the jump in my mind. Uh, I was a professional choral singer with the National Chamber Choir of Ireland at the time, and I had given in my notice and I had no idea what was going to happen. And it was something like 11 days later, I got nominated for the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, things did kind of in that sort of a way. But um, in terms of nudges, there are personal nudges. Yeah, That's how yeah. that song came from. And since I've written that song, I'd say my life turned upside down in loads of different ways. But um, I wanted to do this. This is what I wanted to do. And I think I'm a little bit addicted to fear as well. Mm. It's kind of a scary place. Yeah. But uh, you sort of get tired of being afraid. And you're just like, okay, you know, I have absolutely no chance of 
house mortgage, all that sort of stuff. Although I did for a while when I was signed with Sony, but then it was, I wasn't going, going to do well, anything Well, in the same way that I find Dermot slightly terrifying because he has such an incredible output and it makes me feel like, what am I doing with my life? Um, in the same way, I find you slightly terrifying too. You know, you were like a kind of musical prodigy types and you play 50 instruments and you were playing 13 instruments on your first album and you're and like that kind of, you know, singular focus on one thing and doing it so well and so broadly terrifies me and other people because I'm like, I feel like you're setting up an impossible standard for everybody else. So... Music was going to be your thing. I don't mean to be scary. I don't want to be scary, but uh, I think there's far more scary things. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, when I think back to that moment now, I thought, oh my goodness, I've made it. I won this thing. <clears throat> now that just seems, you know, I didn't feel that was really success at all. Like now yeah. I'm actually yeah. really living and I feel like I'm taking a big bite out of life. So this is the song we've been talking about that you're going to play for us and tell us what the song is actually about for us maybe. Life's Nudge. I suppose it's very much, and it's, it's hard to tell. It's kind of, it's about that moment when the mat is completely pulled from under you. And I suppose I felt the same that time then as, as I have felt in recent times when the mat was pulled from under me. So uh, yeah, it's just about the actual, what goes on in your head. Now you're going to be accompanied here by Cormac Dabara, who's over here hiding behind a giant harp. Um, what is one thing you always see a harp, you know, on the old coins or something? You think, oh look, it's tiny, and then you see one in real life, and you're like, oh my god. Well, I, <laughs> I, I rang Julia and said, can I bring the small harp? Or I, didn't, oh, well, I love the big, they love the bass, so the big ones. Okay, I'll bring it in. Good, fine. I'm delighted to get to bring her out. She doesn't get to come out much because she's too big. But anyway, so <laughs> well, um, accompanied by Cormac Dabara on his gigantic harp, here's Julie Keane. <laughs> Shock you 30 days and nights full of cement inside. A crying feast, emotion, cocktail limbs broken but moving. A hurt shell still hopeful. You file it all under bewildered. Significance is linked to ordinary things, peculiar superstitious comforts, challenging times, straining the head, causing the heart. A tumbling head, puzzling days, puzzling dreams, treading water just to try to breathe. Get out of the world, get out of the dreams, get out of the place, out of the anxiety, out of the head, out of the sleeping, a weak kind of rage. Get out of the dreaming time for thrills without the big dreams. Reality reminds us. Tolstoy's themes torment her rips around the being, but finally life feels too good to believe him. Life's unexpected nudges come. Can't blame anyone. Life's unexpected nudges come. You can't let it keep you down, keep the wolves from your head As you wait for the horse, the hollow inside Slowly fills with hope, eyes adjust to the dark light Shapes form like in the dead of night Time to shed the heavy cape, the exhausted oars Gonna radiate 
and the exhausted eyes gonna radiate and a quivering smile's gonna find its face time for thrills without the big dreams reality reminds of Tolstoy's themes torment rips around the being but finally life feels too good to believe him life's unexpected nudges come can't blame anyone life's unexpected nudge has come you can't let it keep you down keep the wolves from your head as you wait for the horse the hollow inside slowly fills with hope eyes eyes adjust to dark light but suddenly light fears do for to believe him life's unexpected nudges come Anyone, life's unexpected nudge has come. You can't let it keep you down, keep the wolves from your head as you wait for the hopes. The hollow inside slowly fills with hope. Eyes adjust to the dark light. Shapes form like in the dead of night. Time to share the heavy cape. The exhausted R's gonna radiate. The exhausted R's gonna radiate. The quivering smile's gonna find its face. Time for thrills without the big dreams. Reality reminds of Tolstoy's themes. Torment rips, rips around the being. But finally life feels too good to believe him. Life's unexpected nudges come and you can't blame anyone. Life's unexpected nudge has come. You can't let it keep you down. Thank you. Thanks, Cormac. Um, now, Julie, you've just had a second child, and um, one of my great friends is uh, Maria Doyle Kennedy, and so I've often spoken to her uh, about what it's like you know, to be a woman in the music industry and getting a little older or whatever, but especially about when it comes to having children. That, that somehow in the music industry, there's still this thing that somehow motherhood isn't, it's not sexy enough for something. You know, do you identify with that feeling? I think a lot of the time it's kind of, People look at it as something that isn't an enriching thing, but for me, it's just, I mean, it just blows my mind. Mm. I, I love, I absolutely love being a mother mm. and not everybody does or not everybody identifies with it, but I feel it's part of me and I feel yeah. sated and uh, fulfilled. Yeah. So uh, for me, I don't not, I wouldn't be putting children into social media or any of that stuff. This mm. is not me whatsoever. I just will be talking about music the same way I do, you know, but I wouldn't be... I sound like I'm not answering your question mm. because I kind of don't care. Yeah. Because I think at the end of the day, like, it's the work that counts. Mm. So, like, I just better make a really good album, the next yeah. one. And, like, I kind of don't... I just, yeah, I don't care. If that is yeah. the way that it is, I, it's just up to me to come up with the goods. Because at the end of the day, if it's good enough... Yeah. People will play it and they'll go, oh, but then she's, you know, mm. she's a mum, whatever. So I always think the people around the music industry, they're afraid that, you know, suddenly this woman that they had to sort of handle on and, and what they were selling in a sense. And now they're afraid that, that, oh, she's going to come back with a whole bunch of songs about breastfeeding, you know. Well, like, so, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. The people probably do get a bit nervous because I'm a bit of a mother at that type. I'm all into mm. the, the hippie, more hippie version <laughs> of things yeah. that people do. But, yeah, people probably would get a little bit nervous of it. I mean, I think it's up to people to kind of define it in a different yeah. way. But I have a, I, what I'm working on at the moment is 
kind of there's a child thing going on there. Um, but you're writing an opera essentially based on um, Oscar Wilde's children's story, The Happy Prince. Yes, uh, which I stalled uh, just before having the first child, just so people know. And you're working with Marina Carr on it. The, yes. The playwright Marina Carr, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Marina Carr, w- absolutely wonderful uh, person. Uh, and, and how did the, the Happy Prince thing come? Because, because, you know, I had the Happy Prince as, as a kid. Now, of course, at the time, I didn't know who Oscar Wilde is. And I didn't, never even caused my mind to ask who, who wrote it. But it was one of those stories that has lingered with me. And how, how did that come about? The, uh, the I was fascinated by Oscar Wilde. I, I really feel sorry for him that he had such a, a raw deal. I, I, I feel like I felt like I wanted to do something. I, you know, and who am I? It's just a, just old me kind of thing. But you're going to make an amazing Irish mother. Or <laughs> you're going to oh, who am I? Just little old me. Like, <laughs> you oh you God, are an Irish mother I have already. to watch myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to do, deal with something that has to do with flying. Because it's not called the Happy Prince either. It's called Bird. Bird. Yeah. It's in the land of uh, Birdland, but it's uh, it's become something completely different and much more complex now. The characters are much more developed. Well, I mean, you know, it seemed to me that, that opera is a kind of a a great natural progression for you because you, you know you're into the costumes and the theatrics of mm-hmm. performance and you know, it, it feels like it's it's the right milieu for you. Well, I like the theatric like that song that I perform there. Normally, I start lying down on the floor mm. and I end up kind of crawling around. So I felt funny over there, but I, I like the theatre of things. Yeah. You know, I yeah. do. But I think that things have to stand up on their own merit as well. The music yeah. should be rock solid, able to stand up on its own. So I wanted to develop even more the theatre side of it. So I want to work with a theatre person who yeah. can, you know, poke me in the right direction for that. Mm. Uh, like, ideally, I'd like each of the components. It's a bit ambitious, you know, what I'm trying to do. Now, now Jenny, uh, um, she's had just her second child. There's baby puke on that dress, probably, if you look hard <laughs> enough. You know, mothers are important. Mothers and your mother, well, maybe more than most mothers... She's been a nudge in your life on more than one occasion. Big time. I mean, I've always adored my mother. I mean, I was a yeah, like, I have to just jump in here for a second and say, I so want to re- meet your mother now after yeah. reading up about her and finding out things about her. You yeah, know, yeah. Amazing. She's impressive. She's cool. She's a goldsmith. Yeah. At a time when, now correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there was many women no. goldsmiths. And she made a brooch for the queen that the queen still wears, apparently. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. She had done this brooch uh, while working for Andrew Grima and... Um, Prince Philip came in and bought it for the Queen for an anniversary present. And there's loads of photographs of her still wearing it. It's got carved ruby birds and a very sort of 60s design that was really my mum's vibe. She's quite organic, whereas I'm quite symmetrical and minimalist. She's much more textured mm. and swirly. But anyway, so, so then she takes you to Canada. Mm. And she was a designer for a national chain called Henry Burks and Sons, which is a bit like the Tiffany's of Canada. So she was designing and then the man who had hired her eventually said, let's go into business together. So he's like, the condition is that we move to Vancouver Island. So we did. We moved from Vancouver to, to Victoria and we, we grew up there and they went into business together. So they had a jewellery manufacturing as well as a sort of jewellery design company. Um, so I grew up in a jewellery workshop, really. It was just there in the background, but I was actively discouraged as a lot of parents do that work in difficult fields a lot of artists and poets and writers would be like don't do this do something more practical you know go to university get a solid mm. job and so you came to Ireland and you ended up having this sort of very successful career as a DJ the kind of you know you got the kind really the job lucky. that all the other DJs want and yeah. and you had all and then what age were you when you thought oh feck it this isn't what I want 
I was 39, so I think it must have been that coming up to 40, that looming thing. So I remember when I started and conversations with the Dan Hegarty, we'd always say, here for a good time, not a long time, because we never thought mm. they'd keep us. Yeah. We never thought we'd get to do it for very long. So mm. then all of a sudden, when you're sort of in nine and a half years or something there and and you're sort of thinking about, well, what next and what later in life? And is this, do I see myself being an indie rock DJ in my 50s and 60s? Should I be moving into talk radio? Should I be doing something else? And Shane mentioned that, you know, until they kick you out. And there's always a sense in entertainment that that could very plausibly mm. happen. Yeah. You know, moods change. So they were really pushing people out at the time. And I thought, what do these early retirement packages get? You know, I was just wondering what they were offering people. And then I realized it wasn't actually for early retirement. They were actually looking for the younger staff to take it. And I just started to get that butterflies in the stomach, excited feeling. And I, it was really as simple as that. I just started to feel excited about the thought of leaving. And I hadn't realized that maybe I was a little unhappy until I discovered that the excitement of the, the unknown, the fear of doing something different and be uncomfortable again. Well, and something new eventually turned out to be something old in a way, because you went into the same business as your, your mother and I mean, something you grew up with. Mm. I was looking for a big ring and one of the whole things that I felt is that the whole time I was a DJ, especially at festivals and interviewing rock bands, you know, it's really jeans and t-shirts and Converse mm. and, and that's me and when you're sitting there waiting to be mic'd up or for people to check levels or to roll tape, you have that sort of break the ice sort of conversations, which is usually involves what you're wearing yeah. and I wasn't going to be wearing the beautiful jewelry that my mum and her students made. It wasn't a sort of pearls and diamond set yeah. sapphire kind of situation when you're in a muddy field, so I was wearing a lot of terrible costume jewelry really and I felt disloyal wearing this junk jewelry as yeah. I called it so I wanted to fill that space eventually I realized that's what I wanted was good quality jewelry that reflected my lifestyle a and, little and bit your more lines edge only edge, edge only, only the opposite edge yeah only. but yeah so it was that thing of sort of I was thinking what would the bands that I interviewed like to wear so it's men's and women's which is a little mm. bit unusual because I think guys were kind of ignored in jewelry it was either really conservative or a bit biker and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, sh- um, tell us a, a, a little bit about Dartmouth because they're uh, for children like sort of 12 year old so some of our you know, our audience here is a little older, older than that. Because of eight to twelve year olds, they yeah. say. And the interesting thing is, actually, Jenny said about that sort of you were thirty nine. I always thought it was just me. That I do think that forty, that terrible cliche. I definitely think I had my midlife crisis early <laughs> because I had that you know all of those things about like is this what I want to do forever? And I'd always wanted to write something, but there was a big stretch where I'd kind of convinced myself I wasn't really able to do this kind of thing and. I sort of started in a couple of places. I started to imagine this story about a kid who had to fight monsters for a living in a town just like the town I lived in, in Scaries, mm. and who still had to go to school and all that kind of stuff. And it was all based on this idea of, well, what if he wasn't very good at it? What if yeah. he wasn't confident? What if he was only doing it because that's what his family did and his dad mm. did? And that was the beginnings of the story. But I didn't go into it with a huge amount of confidence. I think yeah. I went in with a bit of naivety that maybe I'd be able to pull it off. So yeah. even though it's for 8 to 12-year-olds, I fully work on the idea that if I'm not entertained by it, then nobody's going to be entertained by it. And it just, whatever way it sort of came out onto the page, it was very much for that younger audience. And I'm hugely appreciative of it because that age is just incredible because there's no cynicism about them. They're not self-conscious yet. You say, has anybody got any questions? And they'll all put their hands up. You ask for volunteers, they all put their <laughs> hands up. You dance in front of them. They think you're hilarious as opposed to an idiot. Yeah. Um, 
And I sort of, I sort of read somewhere, I think you, maybe you said it was quite, that basically it came to you in a, kind of in a flash on the dart. Yeah. And, and is that true or is that what no, you true. say? To, to no, that's true. No, it's absolutely true. I, was, I, was, I, I remember it. I used to get off at Tower Street and it was while the train was rolling into Connolly. And this idea just sort of hit mm. me. And you're going to read us a little bit to introduce it to Finn, yeah. Yeah, what I'll do is actually, because I, 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 I'm going to read the, the introduction to the town itself. Yes. Because I think anybody who knows Scaries, and some people do, will know that this is the drive-in uh, to the town. And from that, I've sort of effectively stolen the town and become quite shameless about it and thrown it into the books. So this was, these were the very first words that I wrote when I was writing the Darkmouth books, and it's the first chapter of the first book. The town of Darkmouth appears in few maps because very few people want to find it. When it is marked on one, its location is always wrong. It'll be a bit north of where it's supposed to be, or a bit south, a little left, or a little right, a bit off, always. Which means that visitors to Darkmouth invariably arrive having taken a wrong turn, soon convinced they'll reach only a dead end. They drive through a canopy of trees whose branches reach from either side to clasp ever tighter overhead, becoming thicker with every mile, until the dappled light is choked off and the road is dark, even on the brightest of days. Then, just as the wood is almost scraping the paint from their car and it seems that the road itself is going to be suffocated, the visitors travel through a short tunnel and emerge onto a roundabout filled with blossoming flowers and featuring a sign that reads, Welcome to Darkmouth. The next line has been updated by hand a couple of times. Population, 6,378. Scratched out. 6,161 scratched out, 5,962. On a wall lining the road, there is large, striking graffiti. It says only this, monsters. Except the last S forms a serpent with mouth wide and teeth jagged. Visitors peer at it and wonder, is that a, could it be a? Yes, that snake really is swallowing a child. The travellers, by now a bit desperate in their search, have finally reached Darkmouth. Their next thought is this, let's get out of here. So they go right around the roundabout and head back the way they came, which is a shame, because if they were to stay, they would realise that Darkmouth is actually quite a nice place. It is a colourful little ice cream shop in the harbour, benches dotted along the strand, picnic tables and fun climbing frames for the kids, and no one has been eaten by a monster for some time. In fact, they aren't really monsters at all. They might look monstrous, and the locals might refer to them as monsters, but strictly speaking, they are legends, myths, fables. They once shared the earth with humans, only to grow envious and violent, so that a war raged through the world's blighted villages for centuries. Now, Darkmouth is the last of these blighted villages, and legends show up only occasionally. This morning just happens to be one of those occasions. So that was, thank you. <laughs> and do you love or hate J.K. Rowling and all the comparisons that are inevitably thrown No, up? well, I wouldn't have a job without J.K. Rowling. And I, I suppose a couple of things happen. People assume you're rich like J.K. Rowling. And I think J.K. Rowling set a particular standard for children's writing. But in doing that, she allowed it become a job. Yeah. And I'm not a huge Harry Potter reader. In a way, it was more actually the likes of Owen Colfer because you could write these kind of big fantasy international stories and yet set them in Ireland. Well, it, that, that sort of brings me to something else I want to bring up. And it's actually something Dermot... I see a little weird connection between you and me in that you have concerned yourself a lot, really since you're a young writer, with the idea of Irishness or how to describe Ireland and, and the idea of Irish nationalism and you know, what is needed and to be Irish and not, you know, what is, isn't Irish. Where does that come from? 
Uh, I'm not really sure. I suppose everybody does that about the place they're from. And I suppose partly because I have loads and loads of cousins in Wolverhampton, in Luton, who worked in the Vauxhall car plant, in Leicester, in Birmingham, in Coventry, in all those sort of places. And I, an Irish football an Irish fan, I even followed Irish soccer when Owen Hand was manager of Ireland. And we once managed to hitchhike our way to uh, Copenhagen to watch Ireland play. And it was extraordinary to see all these buses torn up with Irish fans from Stuttgart and from Munich and from London. And I realised that the only island I really belonged to was that island represented by those 11 people on that football pitch, that menagerie of accents, of Cockney accents, of Scottish accents, of Irish accents, those children who grew up with Irish cheekbones and foreign accents bewildered by their parents' lives. And that was my, the experience of my family and the experience of most ordinary Irish families. And so in some ways I was always interested in those hidden bits of Irish history, those things that hadn't been written about that actually never wrote their memoirs, that whose lives and Birmingham and Coventry and all those places, which are the antithesis of Irish life because more Irish people spent their lives in Coventry and Wolverhampton and Leicester and London than in Dublin and, and Kerry. So I, I've always been, been interested in the expansiveness of, of, of Ireland or, or how Ireland can be expanded to include all those people. That is so you know, amazing to me because one of my big things, and you know, I'm always bugbears, I'm always, you know, people sort of well, I've sometimes refer to me as a gay rights activist and I say, no, that's not how I see it. What I've always be, said is I'm trying to expand the definition of Irishness because when I was growing up, I felt also that my Irishness was being called into question because I didn't connect with all the things that an Irish boy was meant to. I didn't like football. I didn't like you 2 and, you know, whatever, all these things. And so I was like, there was no place for me here. But at the same time, I felt absolutely Irish to the core because, you know, I knew that, that I would have been an entirely different person if I hadn't you know, been born here and grown up here into Irish parents. You know, I grew up running over Mayo fields and climbing over Mayo rivers and, and all that stuff. So, it, of course, it absolutely shaped me and I'm entirely Irish. But that my Irishness was unrecognised because I didn't ha- tick these particular boxes. And so I always say, that's what, I, that's what I was trying to do, is to expand the definition of Irish to include someone like me. But you found that when you pushed people, you did tick those boxes. Because I remember when uh, Boy George, his mother came from Tallis, yeah, am I right? Yes, he's And they, a, no, when totally Boy George was at his first reached fame, they actually wanted to give him the freedom of the town of Tallis. <laughs> uh, and, and this was dispute, this was debated at the town council. And there was one old, like, Fianna Fáil apparatchik, who was very old, uh, uh, who spoke up finally. And everybody presumed to be answered. And he said, well... I say give him the freedom because say what you like about Boy George, but at least he covers his legs, unlike some of the young ones in this town. And so when you go into the Irish psychic, there is room for everybody. Well, I also sort of think, you know, that, you know, it's a very Irish thing, especially from small towns, that they're just thrilled that you got the name of the town in the paper. I'm from Ballinroe County, Mayo, and they love it, you know, when Ballinroe's in the paper. But I would say, you know, they, they would have loved it too if I was an axe murderer, you know, <laughs> and could still gotten the name in the town. But, um... In last week's episode of the show, we had Emmett Kirwan. And, and in some ways, I kind of feel like you and him are like spiritually connected. Because he too is very much, uh, he's a, you know, a poet and a writer and a playwright. And he's very concerned with Tala and working class Dubliners and, and um, writing about them in a, in a real way that isn't a kind of a jokey or uh, sort of way. Do you, do you think that, that that has always been one of your big things? It's a curious thing because when I began to write those plays and reviews, really, where they said things like, he looks too well fed. 
He's too articulate. He's too well dressed with from Fingless. And people say, why are all your novels set in Fingless? And I say, well, well Brian Friel, every play was set in one tiny fictional yeah. town, Donegal, and nobody ever said what is. And when I began Ravenhouse Press, I said, no, we're from Fingless, but we're not going to be confined to publishing local writers as the Arts Council wanted. And we will be from Fingless and we'll be proud from Fingless, but we will not be defined by yeah. Fingless and we will not be corralled by yeah. Fingless. Now, of course... You're, like I was saying, you're a novelist and a playwright and you're, you know, a publisher, but poetry was your first love and you're going to do a poem for us. And um, you, you mentioned in passing earlier on your good late wife and um, the poem that you're going to read for us has a connection to bereavement, really, doesn't it? Well, it has a connection to bereavement and it has a connection to motherhood and this poem is called Little Exes and my father lived for 60 two or 63 years in the same house in Fingless Park where I was born in the back bedroom and when we cleared out the house my father died we thought we'd cleared everything and then we realised we hadn't been near the attic as we opened the attic we found a suitcase and the suitcase was a suitcase that my mother brought from the hospital in 1969 uh, when I was 10 years of age and uh, she never came home and in that I found a letter that I'd written to her and so it was the very last thing the whole house was bare and the only thing that my niece Michelle, who was in a band called Little Exes for Eyes, that were wonderful but are no more, but she was in other, other bands. And that same week, uh, her band, Little Exes, had launched their first album in the Sugar Club. So this sort of walks in. And this poem. Sorry, can I just yes. hear there for a second? So your mother had died when you were 10 years old, yes. and she'd gone to hospital, and you had written this letter to her. Yes. You know, I would visit her every second day, but yeah. you know, nobody had cars in those days. And uh, she died in the Richmond Hospital, and for years I couldn't pass the hospital. So I, I'd obviously had, I'd given my sister a letter to bring into her, yeah. and she'd kept it. And it had stayed in this attic for all those years. And so it was the very last thing, as we were leaving this house, the very last thing that I had in my hand was something given back to me. And uh, so, uh, and if I say any more, there will be very little point in reading the poem, actually, you know. <laughs> little Exus. Unexpectedly, this October afternoon, the telescope turns. I see myself made small again through its objective lens. I am not the widower who recently buried my wife, nor the dutiful son who kept vigil while my father like a punch-drunk boxer, fought to outfox debt, demented and enraged, hands trapped in cartoon gloves to stop him pulling out the tube to his morphine pump. Today, we clear the house where he lived for 60 years. In the bedroom where I was born, my siblings recall how as children, their only clue to my birth coming behind this closed door were anxious instructions to pray. When we opened up the attic, we discovered a suitcase my mother packed for her last trip into hospital. A wash bag and talc. Clothes she never got to wear home. A purse crammed with prayers and the folded letter I wrote as a ten-year-old for my sister to bring into her. I spend one page telling her how good I'm being, then cram three pages with scrawled X's, each one to represent a kiss. Last week, a granddaughter she never knew sang on stage, luminous and radiant, in a band named Little Exus for Eyes. For four decades, in a letter, in a purse, in a suitcase, in this attic, these galaxies of Exus were the banished eyes of a bewildered child. But unfolding them, 
I see myself stare out at who I am now. Across this life, I could never have envisaged when I scrawled untidy excess for a woman I last saw smiling from a hospital bed who sealed them in a puss when Nosis shaved her head in preparation for the operation she would never recover from, praying that one day I might open her puss and be surprised to find my exes returned to me, big exes for kisses, little exes for eyes. I don't think it's such a pain in the ass that sometimes it's, you know, painful or sad things that make the most beautiful things. Anyway, um, it's interesting to me then, so, uh, that family has such an impact on us, even if they're not with you that long, and you're in your sad case, and, and, but, and place is the other thing. That I think were, the two things that shape everybody, your, your place and your family. Now, now, Julie, you are from Galway, like, like you're a proper, <laughs> solid, dyed-in-the-wool Galway woman. Is that something you feel about yourself? I, I do genuinely feel it as a spiritual thing. I really do, and I feel that my last album that I made, I, I, I actually wanted to be physically on the Galway ground. I'd say that's the strongest spiritual thing I feel is to people that have come before me. I, I, I just, there's something earthy about it. And so you checked out where all your kin came from before. I did and all they're, of that, And they're, yeah. they're going way back. Well, right, yeah, six generations at least. And, I, and I'm going to go further when I yeah. get time. <laughs> and your mother is still there? And Yeah, family's still there. Like, I do, I do find it difficult that I actually live in Dublin. Sometimes I love Dublin, but I, I sometimes go, ooh. It's Galway or, or, or death. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, my children were not born there, which is really oh, yeah. troubles me. <laughs> now, Shane, you, you know, as you've sort of mentioned already, like you have turned your place into a character and you know something that you're you're living with all, all the time yeah now is, is, does that connect with her weirdness about where she's from yeah. <laughs> or uh, yeah there are various kind of levels of how rooted people are obviously in any town and certainly there is an idea sometimes in scaries that when we leave the underneath the little bridge to leave the town get a nosebleed because it's like well you know i'm just so comfortable where i am because i now work in an office there you know i used to leave the town every day there'd be long stretches where i don't at all, sort of leave, leave the town because I'm just working. But there is that question of where are you from? And people say I'm from wherever. And you go, no, but where are you from originally? And I do find that wherever I travel, certainly, especially in Britain, you kind of people don't answer the question in the same yeah. way that Irish people well, well, do. Well, Jenny here is the perfect example of the kind of, you know, that, you know, Irish people want a solid, straight answer. And you had to sort of say, well, you know, I'm Irish. Oh, yes, I'm Canadian, Canadian too, but I've heard. For me, my connection is I just really... Home is where I am. Yeah. And, you know... Well, that's also a very new world of you, you know. You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe they're not hung up on that. Now, we, Julie, you were going to play for us again. Yes, yep. And is Cormac, are you up again? He is, Cormac. And you're playing for If I Lose You Tonight. If I Lose You Tonight, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's for my third album. Well, If I Lose You Tonight, I'll find you in Galway. <laughs> Tonight, my love, will I ever know the ache in you? Will your soul soothe or 
the toil and you, my love, or will the pain ever soften? If I lose you tonight, my love, will your heaving love within? Will you eclipse the toil within your heart, my love, or will your soul build a haven? If I lose you tonight, my love, will you hold forth around the absolutely beautiful. I mean, that is the end of uh, Pantocracy for this summer, I believe. Uh, so I'd like to thank our studio audience um, today. Of course, I had many things I wanted to talk to you about that we never got to. And German, I wanted to talk to you about your Ulysses in the Abbey. We never even got around to it. But good look at that. That's in the autumn, right? In, in, it's in October. Okay. Uh, 
Julie, I'm sure Galway is very proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny, I'm sure the DJ world misses you, but the, you know, it was the jewelry world again. And Shane, thanks for making it all the way in from Scaries. And Cormac, thank you so much for coming in and playing with Julie. Um, so um, that's it from Time to Socrates. Thank you. you can hear all the episodes are online. All the episodes are online. Thanks. Yeah.